This morning's New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, 21st chapter, verses 33 through 46. In your pew Bible, you can find it on page 826. Parable of the Tenant. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through our series on the Gospel of, of Matthew. And before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us, what it tells us. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that it proclaims to us. And Lord, I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this text, and that you, through your spirit, would apply them to our hands, to our hearts, to our heads. Father God, 
And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in the name of your Son, Jesus, um, in the power and the efficacy of your Spirit. Please, Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin today by taking a look at an important figure that the 20th century introduced us to. The ever-earnest, the possibly misunderstood, the always insatiable Cookie Monster. I hope that all of you are familiar with with Cookie Monster. And, And one thing about Cookie Monster, of course, he loves cookies, right? His life revolves around cookies, but when you watch Cookie Monster actually eat a cookie, something is off. He munches the cookie, but all of the crumbs actually fall out of his mouth. You've seen this and fall onto the floor. None of the cookie actually goes into his stomach. And they can't, right? Because he's a puppet and his mouth is closed off from his stomach. We might say that he tastes the cookie, but he's never really actually eaten a cookie. And so the cookies could never satisfy Cookie Monster. Supposing that that a cookie could give Cookie Monster or anyone the nutrition that they needed, Cookie Monster couldn't actually get this nutrition. The cookie doesn't accomplish its purpose in Cookie Monster. And so, when you think about it, there's a deep irony there. Cookie Monster has never truly eaten a cookie. And this may seem a strange way to begin a sermon on the parable of the tenants or any biblical passage for that matter, but bear with me for a few minutes because I think it actually fits well. Let's look at the tenants. The tenants from the parable, they've leased the vineyard but they've forgotten or actually denied the key fact about the vineyard. The vineyard is not theirs. They're they're leasing it. It belongs to the master. Everything has been made ready and everything has been prepared for them. As, As Jesus tells us, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. They have been received into a wonderful vineyard that's equipped with everything that they could need to harvest the fruit of the vine. They've been placed in a wonderful garden, so to speak, that provides fully for them. Which, of course, is a familiar biblical image and pattern. They are to garden and work the land that they've been given and placed within, but they have to remember that all of this ultimately belongs to the master. They must not forget that they did not build the vineyard. They must remember that it is not theirs to do with whatever they want. They must remember that they are guests living upon the good graces of another. And if they forget this, they forget the most basic truth of what they are doing, where they are doing it, and why they are doing it. Among other things, this means that they're supposed to offer the fruits back up to the owner. They're to offer it back up to the one who gave it to them. And we all, in some way, shape, or form, we live like these tenants. We have all received good gift after good gift from the hand of God, And yet, we withhold giving God back to him his due. And here's the connection with Cookie Monster. Hear me out. Again, 
Cookie Monster has never really eaten a cookie because he can't bring it down into his stomach. He only tastes the cookie and then he lets it all fall out again. And what if we have never really enjoyed the good gifts of God because we've never brought them high? We've never offered them back up to God in thanksgiving. What if the only way for the tenants to truly receive the vineyard is to offer it back up to God? What if the only way for us to enjoy the good gifts of God is to offer them back up to God? What if, perhaps, ironically, this is the only way to truly have anything? What if we can't truly have the good gifts of God unless we recognize them as gifts? Submit to our responsibility of stewarding them as gifts? And then offer these gifts back up to the Lord in thanksgiving. What if not to receive them as gifts is quite simply not to receive them? We munch and we munch and we munch and we never find that deep satisfaction and lasting fulfillment that we desire in these things. They fall out of our mouths like crumbs. Despite his name, Cookie Monster has never truly eaten a cookie. By the same token, have we ever truly received the gifts of God? Yes, this is a parable specifically condemning the religious leaders for the ways that they've failed in stewarding their leadership positions. But it's also a parable that shows us the ways that we've failed, sorry, we failed to steward all that God has given us. And so let's look at this parable under three headings. The gratitude for God's gifts, the stewarding of God's gifts, and finally, the judgment through God's gifts. Let's look first at the gratitude for God's gifts. Importantly, and this is key, remember, Jesus is in the temple. He tells this parable in the temple. This is the place where the good gifts of creation that have been received by God were literally offered back up to God. The good gifts of creation, those of the harvest, those of livestock, of plants and animals, they're placed upon the altar and they're offered back up to God. Some of these offerings were specifically for the purpose of guilt, having an animal take the punishment that we deserve, but some were also for the purpose of thanksgiving and gratitude. For instance, Leviticus 7, sorry, Leviticus 7 It instructs us about the thanksgiving offering that the people of God were commanded to make. It writes, If the priest offers a sacrifice for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with a thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. All of this happens in the temple, the very place where Jesus is telling this parable. And this parable is a very fitting image for all of these offerings. What are the tenants supposed to offer back to the master? They're meant to offer back the fruit of the vine, wine. And I believe this is intended to communicate all of the many offerings that are being offered back to God in the temple. Because what is wine? Well comes from grapes, the fruits of the harvest, the harvest that is offered up in thanksgiving to God. And what is wine? Well, it's a representation of the blood 
offered to cover our guilt before God. And withholding wine from the owner, the tenants are rejecting their guilt and they're holding back their gratitude from God. They must remember that they are tenants. They must remember that they are merely stewards. The offerings are a key part of this. And again, this is all of us. All that we have, all the good things we have, are gifts from God that we are called to steward. For instance, think about all the good things in your own life. If you think you are the primary reason you have them because of how hard you've worked or how well you've done, you are wrong. If you think you have these gifts because you deserve them more than other people, you're wrong. Think about the opportunities and advantages that you have been born with. Think about the things that just happen to come together in an uncanny way apart from any planning on your own. If you think that these things are your due, you will never see them as the gifts of God that they are. And we have to let that truth humble us with childlike gratitude. We have to remember that these are gifts and let us steward all of these gifts well. That's what we're called to do, but we can never forget that the things that we steward are, in fact, gifts. In a fallen world, everything outside of hell is a gift. And so we have to learn to say with the Apostle Paul, what do you have that you have not received? And if you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If every good thing that we have is a gift, then we must be grateful. And it's well known that gratitude improves our well-being, our joy, the quality of our lives. Uh, for instance, I saw this this week, the, the Harvard Medical School website, it provides an article and it details two studies about thankfulness and gratitude. In one study, people who took time to step back and write about the things that they were thankful for each week, in contrast to the people who daily recorded the things that irritated and displeased them, well, that first group, they were found to feel much better about their lives. In the other study, people were tasked with writing and delivering a letter to gratitude, of gratitude to someone who had helped them in the past, but they had never given a thank you to. And it's interesting, the, 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 the article states about this group, participants immediately exhibited a huge increase in happiness scores. This impact was greater than that from any other intervention with benefits lasting for a month. That's a significant increase. Gratitude, it seems, just is a healthy way of being in the world. It's a disposition that cultivates joy. And if everything truly is a gift from God, then there is no more basic disposition, no more basic orientation to the world as a human than that of gratitude. And this is a key truth. If we are not grateful for what we have been given by God, we will be miserable. There are certainly many, many reasons why we, leap, why we weep and lament. Please, please hear me say that. But if we are not grateful, our only other option is to be miserable. If you never give thanks, you will never have joy. 
And if all the good things we have are a gift from God, then we truly can't receive anything without that thanksgiving and that gratitude. We're back to Cookie Monster and his never having actually eaten a cookie. The English priest and and poet George Herbert puts this well in one of his poems. He writes to God, Thou that hast given me so much, give one more thing, a grateful heart. Nothing we have, no family relationship, no friendship, no level of ability or health, no vocation or job, no house or apartment, no resource, no beautiful spring day, no gift of any kind can be enjoyed without a grateful, thankful heart. So ask yourself, what have you been given? What are you taking for granted? Personally, it's not until I'm sick that I really value my physical health. It's not until my car breaks down that I appreciate just the, the, um, the, the gift it is to be able to drive from place to place. And, and sadly, and maybe this is your experience too, sometimes it's not until I move away from a place that I've really come to appreciate the deep friendships that I had in that place. And so ask yourself, what are you overlooking right now? What are you taking for granted? What do you need to stop and thank God for right now? When was the last time that you stopped and prayed and simply offered thanksgiving? Who do you need to go to after this church service and think to offer gratitude to, just like the people did in the study? Without a grateful heart, you will be like Cookie Monster. An ungrateful heart is like that wall that separates Cookie Monster's mouth from his, from his body, right? that keeps the cookies from, from coming in. Without a grateful heart, you will never actually receive and enjoy the many good gifts that God has given to you. My kids, they have these, these coloring books, and, and these are great because they're, they're essentially mess-free. But what they do is it's, it's sort of a cardboard page, and, and they take a, a brush, they put some water in there, and, and once the water from the brush hits the page, well, all of the colors are suddenly filled in. The whole picture comes to life, uh, moving from sort of a black and white colorless image to a kind of chromatic smorgasbord of sorts. And this water, this water is let, lets you see and appreciate the picture that's there. And this is exactly what gratitude is to everything in our life. It helps us to see it and to appreciate it rightly in its full depth. But everything, all is a gift. But we have to remember something else and that that's gifts come with responsibilities. And this truth brings us to our second point. Stewarding the gifts of God. Again, remember that Jesus is telling this parable in the temple, but there's more. There's something else we have to remember. Jesus' parable today is still an answer to the question that the Pharisees, that the chief priests too, asked him when he entered the temple. By what authority are you doing these things? And again, it's the religious leaders that are the most immediate targets of this parable. As the conclusion of today's passage tells us, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. 
And with that, the leaders would understand one of the key reasons that Jesus in this parable uses the image of a vineyard. Jesus is drawing upon the image of Isaiah 5, which we read um, before the New Testament reading. Israel there is pictured as a kind of vineyard that God is caring for, establishing, and tending. We find, in fact, much of the same imagery used in Isaiah 5 that's also used in this parable of Jesus. Isaiah says metaphorically of God and his people, He dug the vineyard and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. In this case, in the case of Isaiah 5, the judgment lays upon God's people. But in today's parable, the judgment primarily falls upon the leaders of God's people. Jesus is showing them that they are the ones who have forfeited and nullified their authority. The leaders have not stewarded and shepherded the people under their care. They were meant to lead the people, here represented as the harvest, as the wine, the fruit, to lead all of that, to give all of that back to God. But instead, they sought to make themselves big and to make God small. They've forgotten the whole purpose of their vocation, of their calling, of their leadership, is to bring people to God. Instead, they seek the people's praise and adoration for themselves. And this reminds us that ultimately our stewarding of God's gifts, all the many things that he has given to us, is ultimately for two things. The glory of God and the good of our neighbor. The glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Remember that all of God's ethical commands are summarized in the two great commandments, that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbors as ourselves. However, the religious leaders here have disregarded the true good of their neighbor, the very neighbors that they are responsible for shepherding, and they've directed the glory that is due to God back to themselves. And really, when we think about it, in the final analysis, if what we do isn't directed towards these two ends, and mind you, any and all good work can be directed to these two ends, but if it's not, then it's all for not. Consider the words of, of Dorothy Day, a severely neighbor-focused Christian from the last century. As, as Day stood on the midst of her conversion, she experienced the birth of her daughter, and reflecting upon it, she wrote the following. She says, if I had written the greatest book, composed the greatest symphony, painted the most beautiful painting, or carved the most exquisite figure, I could not have felt the more exalted creator than I did when they placed my child in my arms. Day, her, herself a writer, she realizes that even the greatest book pales in comparison to this human person. Yes, writing is important. Yes, language and stories and words are great gifts from God that we have the privilege and honor of stewarding. But even books, right? They're ultimately for people. And nothing that Day could make by her own hands compares to the worth and the value of the child, the human person that she now holds in her hands. In a way, the greatest book or the greatest symphony or the greatest painting is for this child. I mean, think about it. If only you existed, 
who would you write books for? If only you existed, why would you farm more than you could eat? If only you existed, why would you clean spaces that you yourself don't live in? If only you existed, why, who would you sell goods to? All of the vocations and jobs and tasks that we give ourselves to, they wouldn't make much sense if you were the only person that existed. All of these things are a means of glorifying God and doing good to our neighbor. But these gifts, these great gifts, they come with great responsibility. In this case, now day will have to begin the rigorous and hard, but truly privileged and joyful work of parenting. Yes, gifts must be received with gratitude, but that's not all. Gifts place responsibilities upon us if we are to receive them. That's what we talked about in the, in the kids' sermon. For instance, if someone saw my lawn, I would understand if they gave me a bag of, of fertilizer. And to fully receive this gift and so do what the giver intended, I would have to get out that bag and actually get out there and fertilize my lawn. I would have to do the hard work that this gift demands if I'm really going to receive this gift. If the fertilizer just sits in my garage, which it very well might, I really haven't received it. Only by attending and fulfilling the responsibilities that the gift demands do I receive the gift. If you are to receive the great gift that is your child like day, you must undertake the responsibility of of parenting. And if you, for instance, are to receive the great gift of friendship, you must undertake the hard but very good work of friendship. That means enjoyment and appreciation of the other. Sacrifice. It means inconveniencing and being inconvenienced. It means asking questions and not just talking about yourself. It means confronting and being confronted. It means repenting and confessing. It means seeking and giving forgiveness. And to the extent that we do not do these things, to that same extent, we do not receive the gift of friendship. To the extent, for instance, that we don't ask and give forgiveness, to that same extent, we don't really have friends. Again, we are cookie monster. We're not really eating the cookie. We're not really receiving the friendship. It's, it's crumbs. The crumbs of friendship, if you can say that, are, are falling out of our mouths. But we can think of another example. Think about this church community. If you are going to receive the gift of this church community, you must receive and take upon yourself the responsibilities that this community places upon you. For instance, if you're not seeking out relationships in which you can disciple and be discipled, you're neglecting the responsibilities of this church community. But to the extent that you do do these things and and all of the other responsibilities that the church community entails, well, to that extent, you receive the gift of this church community. We must never be cookie monster Christians, never really eating the cookie, but just letting the crumbs fall out of our mouth. We must not let the fertilizer of our souls, if I can say that, sit unused in a dark and dank garage. You can only really receive anything to the extent that you use it for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. Uh, Writer uh, Rosaria Butterfield, she she puts this quite well. She speaks of a, a radical hospitality, 
of the ways that we use the, the goods that God has given to us to love and to serve our neighbor. She writes the following. She says, Those who live out radical, ordinary hospitality, they see their homes not as theirs at all, but as gifts of God to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community, gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that's the point, building the church and living like a family, the family of God. Again, the whole point of all of our stuff, whatever it is, is to love God with our whole being and love our neighbor as ourself. That's the ultimate purpose. So much so that when Butterfield uses the good gift of her house in these ways, she's actually receiving it more fully, even if our intuition would tell us everything but that. Her house is not a cookie uneaten or fertilizer unused. No, it's a gift that she receives from God by using it for the purposes of God. It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving that she places upon the temple altar. And ironically, by offering it to God, she actually receives it more fully. Toward that end, for instance, it's not a bad idea, it's never a bad idea, to get furniture from things like Facebook Marketplace. Because the beauty of that is the stuff is already well used. And in theory, that means you shouldn't stress too much if kids, or anyone for that matter, dents up your stuff. Because, you know, the first dent is always the hardest. But then, you know, you feel this. There's a kind of relief, right, that comes with that first dent. You can take a fresh, you know, a breath. And here's the thing. You'll actually receive your stuff better when you don't stress about the damage that people can cause to it, but focus more on the good that it can cause people. You're not worried about it getting dent or broken or all of these things. And, and what that means is I am absolutely confident that Rosaria Butterfield enjoys and delights in the good gift of her house much, much more than I do. And that's to my shame. But again, and this is key, all of these relationships and the responsibilities that come with them, they present us with good work. But this work can be hard. And so we're often tempted to throw off these responsibilities. We see this again in the religious leaders that Jesus is confronting. We also see this in Jesus' parable. Instead of offering the master his due, the tenants contrive, they plot to keep the fruit of the vineyard for themselves. And each time the master sends them someone to collect the due, a servant, the tenants respond by beating and or killing that person. And eventually we read, Finally, he sent his son to them saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And this brings us to our third and our final point. The judgment through God's gifts. Again, this parable is primarily representing the religious leaders, their relation to the people, and their relationship with God. But again, this is a parable that shows us the kingdom of heaven, and so it also carries very important implications for all of us. The tenants refuse, and they reject the master. They want to use power 
to claim the vineyard and use power to take it for themselves. And please note, and we can talk about this later, but I think the two most basic understandings we have of reality in our modern moment is that either everything is a gift or everything is power. For the tenants, what is most basic about the vineyard is not that it is a gift that demands gratitude and stewardship. No, what is most basic about the vineyard for them is that they can take it. It can become theirs through the use of power. In this case, by killing violently the son of the master. If everything is a good gift from the creator, then again, what is demanded of us is gratitude and the proper stewardship, fulfilling the responsibilities that it brings upon us. Again, responsibilities to receive this gift, the responsibilities that are placed upon our shoulder, the responsibilities by which we receive anything that we've been given. However, if that's not the case, if the vineyard really isn't a gift from some good creator, isn't really a gift from the master, well, then it simply goes to the person with the most power. And there's nothing deeper than power. This is where the, the tenants are. And in our modern moment, I think in many ways, this is the ethic that has won the day. As a philosopher, Alistair McIntyre argues, without anything outside of us that can call our ethics and our actions into account, without some transcendent truth that's bigger than humanity, then we have no, no criterion, no, no standard, no set of ethics beyond our own personal emotions and, and feelings. All I can do is set my feelings and preferences against yours. And then the one who is most powerful will be able to carry out their preferences. For instance, maybe you tell me that I should make sure that those who work for me should earn a living wage. But really, all you're telling me is that you feel that I should do this. But there's no order out there, no master or gift giver who could hold us accountable. The only order must be the, the personal one that I feel is right. And maybe my personal order is different than your own personal order. And since I have more power, then my preference is going to win out. Perhaps you think the tenants here have acted wrongly. Well, if all of this isn't a gift from God, the gift from someone or something that can call us to account, then really all you're telling me is that you feel that they have acted wrongly. The only thing you can tell them to hold them to account is to use your preferences and your feelings, saying what you think they should do. That's interesting, but really nothing more. And unless you have the power to stop them, to assert your preference over theirs, this is simply the way it is. But deep down, we all know that this really isn't the case. We all know deep down there must be something deeper than power. There must be justice. And even the religious leaders, the very ones who are perpetuating the injustice that Jesus is now confronting, they know this too. Jesus asked the religious leaders, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And how do they answer? They said to them, said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And please note here a few important things. The first is that this master is incredibly 
gracious. He has sent them servant after servant after servant and even his own son to make things right. The second is this. Putting the wretches to a miserable death, well, that's the judgment that's explicitly pronounced by the religious leaders. What this means is that God, the master, the giver, the one who has actually been wronged, he's much more gracious than the wrongdoers. But this does mean that there is a judgment, that we will be held to account, that there is something outside of us, something bigger than us in our preferences, something that does call us to account. But does this mean that we deserve a miserable death? We, like the religious leaders, are very quick to hoist this judgment, this pronouncement upon others. I've cited this statistic before. Um, 42% of registered voters in America believe those in the other party are, quote, downright evil. What will happen when we take political control? We will put their principles and policies and pundits to a miserable death. We, like the religious leaders, are quick to see the faults and judgments that we think others deserve, and we're quick to call for their miserable death. But we're not so good, we're not so great at actually seeing our own faults and our own guilt. The gospel tells us, though, that we, like the tenants and like the religious leaders, have refused to offer God's good gifts back up to God. That's what we've been talking about. We, too, have rejected the logic of the temple. We've rejected the very logic of what it means to be human, the human life. But do we deserve a miserable death? And here's the thing. Yes, we do. And will God enact that justice? Absolutely. He is perfectly just. But unlike the religious leaders, he is also perfectly gracious and merciful. Like the son of the master in the parable, the son of God was sent to us and we killed him. We were the ones that put him to a miserable death. Or more accurately, Christ willfully, lovingly, graciously subjected himself to a miserable death. This is the death of the cross. He took upon himself that judgment that we as the tenants deserve. This is why Christ does not refute the judgment of the religious leaders when they respond to the parable. But this is also why he doesn't stop there with their pronouncement of judgment. Yes, we deserve this, but no, we are not the ones who will receive it. Jesus quotes Psalm 18 saying, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. Jesus here is identifying himself with the stone, and he goes on to say, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus here is speaking about two forms of judgment that he will bring, and, and commentators tend to separate these two aspects of the stone, the falling upon the stone and the stone falling upon people. They separate these into two aspects of Christ's ministry. And I think this is the right reading, but we have to really ask ourselves, how are we supposed to divide this out? And I believe that those who fall on the stone are actually those who receive Christ. 
who admit that they have rejected the gratitude and the stewardship that God's good gifts demand. The religious leaders pronounce upon others, on the tenants in the parable, a harsh, harsh judgment. And we can relate. Think about the harsh judgments that you have placed on other people, and then actually go about holding yourself to those same judgments. Trust me, none of us will hold up. All of us condemn in others the very things that we do. And if you don't think that's the case, you are simply fooling yourselves. And so to rightly see the cross is to see Christ taking the miserable death that we believe others deserve, but then realizing that this perfect justice places this very verdict upon us. There is more than just my preferences. There is a justice that is so perfect that it demands the cross. But there's also a mercy so great that it too demands the cross. To rightly see the cross is to see it as the one and only thing that I am due and entitled to in this world of absolute gift. And I certainly understand if you disagree with this statement, but please admit that then you are operating with a less than perfect notion of justice. And so our righteousness, our self-righteousness and pride It's broken by Christ. The offense of the gospel, we fall upon it and it breaks us in all of the right ways. We admit our sin and then as broken people, we turn to wholeness. We embrace Christ. And so ask yourself, have you been broken by the mercy and the justice of the gospel? Have you been broken by the fact that it took the very Son of God to pay the judgment you deserve for your sin? Have you been restored? Have you been put back together by the fact that the Son of God did this all for you as a gift in the greatest act of love the world has ever known? We are broken as we fall upon the gospel, but then we, the church, are rebuilt upon Christ. We're told he is the one who is the cornerstone of the church. First, we fall upon Christ, and then we are placed and built upon him. He is the cornerstone. But all of us will be broken in one way or another. And if we are not broken by the free gift of the gospel, we will still be broken by Christ. He will become the rock that falls upon us. Christ is risen, and one day he will come again to set the whole world right. On that day, Christ himself will judge each of us, the tenants that we are for all that we have done. And either we will bear the eternal punishment of that most perfect justice or Christ and all of his might will gently stoop down to us, and he will assure us that he himself has borne our punishment already upon the cross. He was quite literally broken for you. The rock has fallen upon him. This is the gift that Christ offers, and let us receive it with gratitude and steward it well. Let us pray. God our Father, We thank you for who you are and all that you've given to us. Guide us and lead us, Lord. Help us to receive the gift of the gospel. Help us to be grateful for it and help us to steward it well in all that we do for your glory and the good of our neighbor. In Christ's name we pray, amen.